from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Donna Kimes Jeffers. Donna started singing professionally when she was 16, starting with Ray Anthony and other bands. After touring with these bands, Donna got the opportunity to debut the Double Mint Gum jingle. Donna returned to working with a band, making a couple of albums for the Command label. I started the interview by asking Donna where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Chicago. Chicago, Illinois, we had, they were very low-rated apartments, as I recall, because we were in an area at that time, that was 1931, I might say, when it was after the Depression and things were not back to normal and I was just a wee one. But we had a lot of fun in the apartment building that we lived in. My sister and I used to tap dance in front of everybody, so... We'd stand there by our front door tap dancing, and people would walk by and throw us nickels and dimes. That helped. <laughs> that was a nice little gift that we got. Our siblings are there? Just, just my sister. Okay, and, and the, she, so the two of you were musically inclined at the very beginning? Oh, yeah. My whole family is. So your parents, uh, too? He, yes. My dad was a child, a boy soprano. My mother played a little piano. And my sister and I are, had trios and things together as we grew up. But we started early, you know, tap dancing at the age of four and so on, and singing. And then all the aunts and uncles sang. So when we'd get together, you know, it was like a Broadway show. Everybody would do their thing, do their stick. Dad played ukulele, and my uncle, Dick, played a banjo. So we also had that, too. So it was a really fun a fun family to grow up in. Now, were your parents professional musicians? No. My father's mother was a violinist, but not a professional one. So it ran in the family. Dad actually started in 40s and 50s doing comedian things, and then we'd go with him and sing. It was kind of fun. Then later, when we grew up to be teenagers, then we started to really get our trios and quartets going, and I had one in high school. I wrote music, studied from a teacher, studied opera, and was in a lot of operettas. And my sister sang with a trio, and then she got married. I went on the road with Ray Anthony. My first husband, Warren, he played trumpet. We were on the road for a year. Now, how did you get into that? Into the singing thing? Or, or the professional, the- yeah, the professional singing my sister's husband, Chuck, Chuck said to me one day, I was 16, and he said, 
I have a friend who plays piano right in the uh, area that we lived in. Uh, it was called Mayfair Park. He, he said, why don't you go over and audition for him? So I did, and he, he hired me. So I started singing with his group at the age of 16. Then I switched over to another bigger band. They had an audition in the, in the uh, newspaper, so I went to that, and he hired me. One thing leads to another. Being with a big band on the, uh, for a year, that was helpful in uh, getting a little notoriety for both Warren and I. So when we came back to Chicago, I just kind of kicked back for a year or so, and he kept playing and with other groups. About two years into that, I got my first commercial. I was hired to do Double Mint Gum. That was through another friend of mine who was in the business already. He, he was the Jolly Green Giant, <laughs> <laughs> a wonderful singer. Uh-huh. And then we started putting a quartet together and a five-way group together and became the new Jingle Heirs. So and the Double Mint Gum Jingle, how did it go? Double your pleasure, double your fun, with Double Mint, Double Mint, Double Mint Gum. I mean, I remember that commercial when I was a kid. Do you? Oh, yeah. yeah. It was probably you singing okay. it, right? Yep. That was probably in the 60s. Yep. That sounds so, about right. Yeah. And they always had twins on there, on the commercial. Yes. So you were telling us about the jingle group. Oh, yeah, the new jingle layers. Well, we made a demo, you know how you do, make a little tape, send it around to the producers, and then, of course, you get a call. That was uh, very lucrative, and we just worked very hard in the, in the 60s, did mostly all the commercials around the United States. I mean, L.A. wasn't doing as much as we were, or New York. But I did fly to New York and L.A. occasionally for a spot that I did. And it, well, mostly I did them in Chicago. And then along with that, we had a, a big band called Brass Impact, and we did four albums for Command Label. And that's where this other gal and I, Joanne Judson and myself, sang all the trumpet parts. We didn't have any words that we sang. It was all the high trumpet parts. So is that like scatting or what? Just, you know, all the trumpet licks mm-hmm. that they play, and it's all written out, you know, mm-hmm. for different songs. So we made a few albums with that in New York. We also... Um, did an appearance at the Kansas City Jazz Festival in the 60s, and gosh, that was really exciting because Stan Kenton was there and a lot of other groups, and we had a standing ovation of about 15,000 people. We did a Prelude to a Kiss was one of the charts that was done by a wonderful, wonderful arranger. We had uh, 18 pieces that would include Joanne and I. So this, again, was just (laughs) doing the trumpet parts? Yeah, they'd blend us right in with the trumpets. You know, mm-hmm. we had microphones, they didn't. So the horns, I would I would be on the lead with the horn, and she would be doing the second horn, you know, who was playing harmony. It's, it's really an exciting sound. You hear it once in a while still here and there, but ours was really unique. I just wish we could have done more with it, but it was hard to get a group to go on the road anymore. And why is that? So, I guess, you know, that had been done so much. The ballrooms that were once there weren't there anymore. 
because people were getting into TV and all those technical things come in, other things go by the wayside. And then some of the ballroom pe- people that owned the ballrooms didn't want to pay the fee for a big 16-piece band to come in. They'd hire somebody like maybe five or seven pieces. That's what happened to the business. It also happened, I'd say, in the early 70s, started to do that with the jingle business because some of the producers decided to put their own little studios in their homes. I had my own studio in Joliet, Illinois. I moved from the Chicago area, and the jingle scene wasn't real great. It was few and far between as far as getting spot work or anything else. I moved there and opened up a recording studio. I went there to help the Baha'i faith. Now, Donna, how is it that you became Baha'i in the first place? In 69, 1969, is when I decided to go to Las Vegas to see a friend of mine, uh, Benny Bailey. He was a wonderful saxophone player who had lived there for several years. So my first husband and I went there just for a weekend, and we had heard that he had made a terrific change in his life because of this religion. So while we were there, I hadn't intended really on independently investigating, and I was just going there for a little weekend fun in the sun. And they came over, he and his wife, Barry, they came over and talked to us, of course, because we'd known him for years in Chicago. He said, why don't you come over to my house for some coffee and donuts, and uh, we're going to have a few people over. I said, no, I think I'll just hang out here at the pool. So we were standing there, and all of a sudden, about five minutes later, this is unbelievable. The whole sky clouded up and it started to rain. Oh, <laughs> I looked at him and I said, well, there goes my son. So we decided then to go over to his house and that's where we heard about the faith. He, he sat there and gave us a wonderful whole history of how it came about. And I just really accepted it pretty readily and sent me home with a book called Thief in the Night by William Sears. I actually was waiting for the spirit of Christ to return. I had been searching, oh, that whole year before that, going to different churches and wondering, gosh, is this ever going to happen? And when I looked through the Bible, there wasn't anything I could really put my finger on it. read Revelations, and I couldn't, of course, interpret some of that. So I decided to just let it go and close the Bible and just raise my kids, you know, the best I could. Well, it was two months later that uh, we heard about it from Benny. So he sent us home with a book, and I read it. I studied it and studied it along with the Bible and decided that Baha'u'llah was truly the return of the Spirit of Christ and became a Baha'i, I think, well, it was in April. And what about Warren? He became a Baha'i six months later. Mm Mm-hmm. That was also in 1969. And then, a year later, my dad became a Baha'i and my mom. Now, how how did that happen? Well, we kept bringing them over to the house of worship because we just lived around the corner from there. For the benefit of our listeners, Donna, you're referring to the Baha'i house of worship in Wilmette, Illinois, which is... Wilmette, Illinois, right on Lake Michigan. Which is the only Baha'i house of worship on this continent. Exactly. And it's bordered by Evanston, which is just not too far from Chicago, you know, 15-minute ride in a car. 
Yes, they used, I would bring them because we lived around the corner in a nice house. and They'd come over and we'd take all our relatives over to the uh, house. We call it the house. So that was the beginning of a new life, really. Um, it led to a group that we put together called Children of Time, the Children of Time. And we took that group out. It was a youth group. We took them out for six months to different colleges around the Midwest, Michigan, Iowa, Wisconsin, Illinois, and so on. What was it that attracted your father and mother to the Baha'i faith? I'm not too sure, except I do know my my father. He read pretty much, but he he was not an avid reader, you know, like my mom was or that I was. He believed that Baha'u'llah was the prophet for today in a, in a succession of several manifestations, and he was the manifestation for today. And he loved the prayers, and of course he, he carried his prayer book with him constantly. Living in Chicago was not easy for them because they didn't have a car, they had to go by bus. So any time that we had something going on, I either picked them up and brought them back to Wilmette to the house of worship, or they would take the train in. They were Baha'is for many years before they passed on. Really grateful for that. It really brought our family together. No one else in my big family, of course, became Baha'is. After you became a Baha'i, you pretty much lived near the house of worship in Wilmette. For uh, several years. Uh huh. Doing the uh, youth choir and teaching children's classes. What happened after that? Well, I did some jazz clubs, too. I went on the road. I went to California for a few weeks while the kids were back and, and well met with Warren. I was with Don Ellis. He was a very big, big band in California. And thought about, you know, it would be great to move out there, but came back. Things kind of went haywire in, in the business. Warren and I separated. We still worked together in spite of that. We have a very special relationship. And then I went pioneering in 1980 to Samoa, American Samoa. Can you explain to the folks what pioneering is? I had always heard that it was wonderful if you would go and travel teach or leave your homeland and pioneer for the faith. It's, it's like a missionary, but you don't get paid for doing it. You have to find your work, but whatever occupation you have and stay there as long as you can and teach the faith. I was at a gathering with others and I sang in concert at that gathering for William Sears. He was a very special person, just a wonderful teacher and author. He had previously been an announcer, a football announcer, and he became a Baha'i through his wife, Marguerite Sears. And they were living in Canada, so he invited me out to sing, and there were maybe 100 to 200 people there. I was sitting in the audience after I had done my show, and Marguerite came running down the stairs, Marguerite Sears. She came running down the stairs from the control booth and said, Guess what, Donna? I said, What? She said, You're going to Samoa, the pioneer. I said, I am? And we had a good laugh about that. But about six months later, I had gone on my way. Donna, why did she say that? Well, they had shown a... I'm glad you, you caught that. 
they had been showing, and I was watching it downstairs while she was up in the sound booth with Bill and the uh, engineer. They were showing him the first Samoan king, the Maliatoa, and that had just set the cornerstone for the first house of worship that they were planning to build. In Western Samoa, they were going to build it. Western and American Samoa are probably a half, oh, half an hour by flight or a pretty long boat ride. But there are several little islands in that area. Uh, American Samoa is more Americanized because it was a, um, a Navy outpost during the Japanese War. So there were still some people from the Navy there and so on. And that's where they had a lot of churches, and they were very musical people. They sang up a storm, really. I mean, each church had a great big choir, and so when I heard that and she heard it, she said, that's perfect, that's perfect. (laughs) You can do something there. So that's why I decided, well, then I go there and see what happens. Did you have any plans at all to leave the country before you saw that film? I always wanted to go pioneering, Uh ever since I heard about it. Since I wasn't doing a lot of commercials or anything at that time, I thought, well, might as well. I'd love to, you know. Kind of a person that likes excitement, I think, and doesn't mind pulling up stakes and moving. Mm-hmm. I moved about 14 times during my whole life, I think. How did you support yourself in American Samoa? Did I support myself? Yeah. Well, I had some money from my residuals that were still coming in. I had a little work there. Mainly, I didn't make a lot of money. I did half-hour videos, programs for the faith that were showed every other week. So I would help write those and produce those. I opened up a recording studio. I shipped all the recording stuff there that I had. And the engineer who had been working with me also came to Samoa with his equipment. So we opened up this studio and I recorded, we recorded a lot of Samoan groups and Tongan groups. And I gave piano lessons and I did a lot of college classes where I would teach some music and how to do commercials and so on, mostly to the adults in the evening. Believe it or not, I sold plastic bags (laughs) to department stores. You just try and get, you know, do anything you can to raise money because by the time you, you get ready to go home after a year to visit, it costs you a good thousand dollars to fly through Hawaii and then back, then into Chicago. But I had the place where I opened up the recording studio. That was free. There was no rent there. Because the Samoan family that owned it also went into the business with us. So we had the Samoan family in the business with us because they knew all the artists in the island and all over that they could bring in. We had a wonderful group from Samoa, uh, Western Samoa, that, that we recorded that was um, really top. I was there for three years. We continued that, and then I also got pretty popular at uh, directing choirs, so a church would ask me to come in, oh, Donna, would you come in, please, and teach us how to sing dynamics, because... When a Samoan choir sings, it's just one dynamic. It's loud (laughs) because this is just the way they've learned, you know. It's loud, but it's exciting. So I worked with a couple choirs like that. And, you know, when you see an orchestra playing, sometimes it 
depending on the conductor. Of course, it's very soft and beautiful, and then, of course, all of a sudden you'll hear the dynamics of the double forte coming out very loud. So that's something they never learned. And they're very much church-oriented there. The Methodist church is very big there. You were there for three years. I was there for three years, and then I had to come back. I had my house up for sale, and it never sold, so I had to come back and get that worked out. And my children missed me. My daughter missed me, mostly, and, and her, her son who was only three when I got back. It was a wonderful experience. Coming back to the States was very humbling because there was so much here. And here I was with my suitcase. It's about all I had at that time left. And uh, had to make a new career, started a new life again. I had a lot of friends that helped when I got back. But slowly but surely I got back on my feet. But I never was able to establish myself in the jingle field anymore. However, I did start singing in the jazz clubs in Chicago then. And that's where I did most of my work in in the jazz field. Wherever I was, wherever I lived, I helped with the Baha'i community. You know, we have an assembly in many, many towns in that area all over the world where that nine people who are in the assembly uh, that are voted on each year um, are like parents to the community. They consult about issues that need to be consulted upon like children's classes and marriages and so on. So I was on an assembly when I came back in in two different towns that I lived in. And I then became a choir director at the House of Worship. I didn't live far from there. You know, the Baha'i faith really turns your whole life around sometimes because I realized that even doing the jingles that I did, was that really service to mankind? I did it because it... I liked doing it. I was good at it, and I made good money. But some of the commercials that were on certainly weren't greatest things for people to eat or <laughs> or use. It was a great career. It really was. I'm still doing music. Now, the choir at the House of Worship, that's an a cappella choir, is it not? Yes, it is. It's The House of Worship is a um, three-story, beautiful architectural design featuring many symbols of many faiths on it, the cross, the uh, nine-pointed star, the Jewish sign, and so on. The grounds are beautiful. They're kept up beautifully. In a neighborhood that is all residential, they're doing a lot of work on it right now. And they're building a new visitor center in about two years. That'll be ready. It's probably one of the more visited places than anywhere, anything in Chicago area. It's historically sited right now. People come from, especially the uh, East Indian people come there, just all kinds of people from on Sundays to walk through the gardens and to sit and meditate and enjoy the beautiful, beautiful trees and flowers. So it was a joy serving that house of worship for many, many years, from 69 actually till 1980. I really served there. And then in the 80s, came back to serve more in that capacity as the choir director. How long were you the choir director? About six years. And then I became interface director. We had two directors, and we needed something different, so we we brought in lots of wonderful 
choirs from all over the city of Chicago, and they would come in on a Sunday and bring their congregations with them. So I was there till 1990. And then, since I was single for lots of, maybe 11 years or so, I met someone and got married to my husband and now Kid Jeffers. We've been serving the faith together. In 1990, we, we, we got married. And we went to Russia. <laughs> we decided to take off. Over the winter of 1991 to August of 91, we traveled for seven months to um, Moscow, Ashgabat, Kazan, Samarkand, and uh, other Sakhalin Island off the coast of Japan. Do you have any stories and, to tell? Oh, gosh, yes. I've been writing them down. In fact, we have a writer's group here at the Desert Rose Baha'i Institute where I live now in Casa Grande. We live here in Arizona. Yes, in fact, one of the uh, wonderful stories that I can think of that I put down now for this is going to be a book eventually is the story about Galena. And we were in the Sakhalin Island and we had traveled by this um, broken down van and it was very sandy and, you know, we got a flat tire and we kept traveling and so on to different little villages to talk about the faith, to share it with people who were there. In this one village that we came to, um, we knocked on their door and, and about eight people came out and hugged and kissed us and brought us into the house and we all sat down in the kitchen at their table, had tea, which they had ready for us. And, and I sang a couple of the hidden words. The hidden words are is from a small book that Baha'u'llah revealed um, in 1868. And it's about ways that he wants us to live, different ways he wants us to grow spiritually. And so I take these little these hidden words and I set them to music. So I sang a couple of those. And then this young lady called Galena played her guitar and sang also. And as we talked, finally Ken would speak to her. And we had a translator, of course, that spoke English and Russian. She said, you know, my mother told me that I always had wings and I didn't know what it was called, and now I know. And she became a Baha'i at that table, and so did all the rest of them, a lovely young lady, and she was planning on going back to the Caucasus, where I think her family lived. We did get a letter from her, oh, I think about one or two years later, well, we haven't heard from her in 15 years. We hope she's doing great things. That's the kind of things that went on, and then we had big concerts where I would sing maybe with a jazz group. I found a jazz group there. My pianist didn't even speak English. <laughs> they would translate for him, and then I would point, and we, we just understood each other. And we had trumpet and piano and bass and drums. And people, even though they didn't know the lyrics, had heard some of the songs, maybe, because there were lots of albums that were smuggled in, maybe. I don't know where they came from, but they were sold at different bazaars in different villages. So there were some people that had some Glenn Miller band things and so on. Anyway, we had about 500 people in the audience that first night when we, we did this in Sakhalin. At the end of the program, Ken said, 
well, did you like the music? And they all said, yes. Did you like what you heard? Yes. That, that was really exciting. So that was one of the larger things, type of things that we did, and then the smaller would be just going into the village and talking to people. Then we came back in the summer after August of 91 and settled in California for about three months. We decided then to move back to Wilmette, uh, to where the house, Baha'i House of Worship was, and we lived there for a year. I did some singing and so on. And then we got a chance after a year to come back to Arizona. Come to Arizona. I always wanted to live in the Southwest. Well, we got a chance to rent a house uh, that was belonged to Ken's son, and they needed a choir director here. And one of my dearest friends, and Ken's dearest friends, who's a professional singer, Nancy Carpa, also lived here. She was in the choir. She was still doing jazz things with her group and such. We moved here in 1993, and we've been here ever since. Our main work here has been, um, mine has been pr promoting the Roses of Love Singers. That's what I call it. And we got that name because when we were in Russia, there was a little pamphlet book that we gave out. It was produced by the Baha'is of Germany, and it was called The Roses of Love. It had different writings from the faith and prayers in it. So we decided to name the choir after that. We had anywhere from 15 to 30 singers in that group. We made a CD recently. Well, I, it wasn't recently. It was three years ago. seems like yesterday. But And we went and sang for many, many organizations and churches. And we went also. We traveled to the Baha'i House of Worship one month because a lot of the singers had never been there. They really appreciated going there. I've got a little jazz group that I'm just putting together right now. I didn't know there were so many musicians in Casa Grande, but that's been fun, and we'll be doing some work. Right now at the Desert Rose Baha'i Institute, I'm really involved in um, being a music coordinator for different events. Then we have a group called the Events Committee, and we're putting on a music and the arts festival, and that's October 11th. We'll have uh, musicians from all over coming, jazz, ethnic, uh, Native American, duets, pianists, and so on. Also artists that will bring their artwork, like uh, paintings and pottery and things like that. So it's going to be quite a large event to raise money for the Institute. Actually, it's a wonderful place here. It's a um, desert. We live right in the middle of the desert. The sunsets are fantastic, especially during the summer when we have the, the rains come. Maybe before we close, Donna, do you have any visions or plans of what you'd, you would like to do in the future? Yes. But right now, I am concentrating also on writing. We had a writer's conference here, and uh, it was really fruitful. I started to write. I always wrote songs. You know, since I became a Baha'i, I wrote songs, let's say. Before then, I was too busy to even think of it. And so I all of a sudden started writing about my travels, and people said, hey, those are neat. So I said, well, maybe I'll just start writing and put them all together and 
So because of that conference that we had, or the retreat we called it, Writers Retreat, we're going to have monthly meetings for all the artists here because this is an artist colony. It's artists and people that do pottery and write stories and it's just a lot of wonderful, talented people. You're referring to the Desert Road, Rose Baha'i Institute. Yes, the Desert Rose through the community here. A lot of them, most of them are artists of some sort. Well, I look forward to seeing it come out. Yeah. And of course, I keep on, want to use, do my little jazz thing here and there, so yeah. that'll be fun, too. Well, Always keep singing, keep writing. Yes, right, right, keep singing, that's right, absolutely. You have a beautiful voice. <laughs> this great Ella Fitzgerald sang up, God, to the last minute, and I don't know how old she was, uh, but wow. in her 80s, I guess. So we'll see. Well, thanks we'll again, Donna. Okay, dear you take, Lauren. You take care of yourself. You too. All right. Okay. God bless. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Donna Kimes Jeffers, a Baha'i who was a professional singer now living at the Desert Rose Baha'i Institute in Arizona. I conclude the program with Donna singing Baha'u'llah's Hidden Words, revealed in 1857 when Baha'u'llah was exiled from his native land of Persia to Baghdad in the Ottoman Empire. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. is the glory of glories. This is that which hath descended from the realm of glory, uttered by the tongue of power and might, and revealed unto the prophets of old. We have taken the inner essence thereof and clothed it in the garment of brevity as a token of grace unto the righteous, that they may stand faithful unto the covenant of God, may fulfill in their lives his trust, and in the realm of spirit obtain the gem of divine virtue.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.